Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you wish to take upon yourself the difficult decision of making an attack, you must concentrate all the forces you possibly can collect at the point you consider the most favourable for the object. This is of course a gamble. It is staking everything on a single card. Max von Hoffmann Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fell special on World War One, episode 20.8, 1917. Ladies and gentlemen, I know it's been a while. I have a perfectly good few reasons for why I had to take about four weeks off from this, and if you're a fan of the Facebook page, you probably know them already. I don't want to drag out the intro though, so if you want to know why, stick around at the end, but if you don't really care either way, you have my permission to switch off once the meat of this episode is done. Without further ado then, let's get down to it. I will now take you to the year 1917. Leon Wolfe, in his book In Flanders Fields, the 1917 campaign, sets the scene that greeted the Western Front on midnight, when the new year officially came to pass. Quote, At the stroke of midnight, he said, Fire! The gun roared, and a shell was lobbed somewhere into the German positions. A few seconds later, there was a single, distinct, far-off explosion, after which a period of strained silence hung in the air. Then the enemy threw up anxious flares, ghastly green but of great beauty. These illuminated no man's land lingeringly, froze it briefly into the aspect of a charcoal sketch, and then faded away. The British battery fired nine more rounds in erratic succession, paused, and then another seven. Thus, the new year, 1917, was advertised by 17 shells, to which the Germans did not respond, and the rest of the evening passed, in relative peace there and elsewhere, on the Western Front. End quote. When 1916 mercifully ended, few could really believe that the war had only been going on for two years. To most on the ground, to the average soldier, to the loved ones at home, the war seemed like it had been going on for an eternity. 1916 had been the bloodiest year in any war ever seen by the human being, so it should come as no surprise to us that both sides were suffering from a kind of state of shock by the time the new year came around. Grand promises had been made about how this year was the year that the war would be brought to an end, and 1917 was a year too far for the enemy because you had him on the ropes and he couldn't hold on for much longer, etc, etc, etc. They were claims made before, and just as they had in 1914 and 15, some wanted to believe that the war could end in 1917, but very few actually did. As Leon Wolf notes, quote, For the first time, soldiers were no longer betting that the war would be over by next year. They had begun to whisper that it might last a lifetime, usually followed by the mocking, they say the first seven years will be the worst. No one sang Tipperary anymore, that dashing, inspiring tune of earlier days. It had been replaced by Take Me Back to Dear Old Blighty, and hopelessly, sardonically, they sang it to the tune of Old Lang Syne. We're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. We're here because we're here because we're here because we're here.
the third New Year's Day of the First Great War had arrived on the Western Front. End quote. To many, 1917 was a year too far, and the British, Germans, French, Italians, Austrians, and most infamously Russians would suffer the worst examples of mutiny in this year. But the beginning of 1917 was greeted with the similar strategic optimism of the last years, which would inevitably peter out as the year progressed. 1917 was to be the year of Passchendaele on the Western Front, a conflict which would last from June to November of the year, and was characterised by ridiculously heavy rain, which turned the battlefield into a crater-filled bog at the best of times, and an impassable lake at the worst. Let's get into the meat of the campaigning in the West now, which began as early as February. All actions on the Western Front must be preceded by the mention of the German strategic withdrawal to what was referred to as the Hindenburg Line, a new defensive line which had been under construction since late 1916. The British would refer to it as the German retreat to the Hindenburg Line, but it was, in actual fact, a strategic withdrawal, brought on by the realisation of the new power couple of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, that German units could be better used elsewhere if the front line was effectively shortened in the west. Moving back to the Hindenburg Line began on February 9th in 1917, and reduced the strain on the German army by about 40 to 45 kilometres, and freed up approximately 13 divisions for use elsewhere. This operation by the Germans was called Operation Alberich, and was accompanied by scorch-earth tactics by the withdrawing Germans, who planned on making the future campaigning in the area by the Allies highly difficult. The first defensive actions in the Allied camp were in the Battle of Arras, in the modern-day northeast French province of Nord-Pas-de-Calais, which would stretch from April 9th to May 16th, 1917, just before the more famous battles within the wider Passchendaele Offensive. Arras hosted some important battles in its own right though, despite only officially lasting a month, as the battles of Vimy Ridge from the 9th to the 12th of April, and the Nivelle Offensive from the 16th of April to the 9th of May took centre stage, and appeared initially to have torn the heart out of the German defensive line. The situation is explained well by John Lee in his book The Warlords, Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Quote, the British attack on April 9th in the midst of a snow blizzard gauged a deep penetration in the powerful new German defences. The day is famous for the storming of Vimy Ridge by the Canadian Corps, but to the south even more spectacular advances were being made by British divisions working in perfect harmony with devastating creeping and standing barrages and putting into effect the new fire and movement small unit tactics based on the new training manuals issued as a result of the staff studies of the Somme fighting in the previous year. End quote. It demonstrated two key things. First, that the British could learn from previous mistakes, and had taken some care to change tactics after the massacre on the Somme. Artillery would move almost in sync with the infantry, and clear the paths as they moved, rather than fire aimlessly for days beforehand, while tanks could roll through any defences too strong to rush. Second, it showed what British and Commonwealth troops could really do if they fought with these new tactics. The defences of the Germans need not be the cause for stalemate any longer, because the German defences could be broken with the right tactics. It was just a shame these tactics took almost three years to discover. Upon learning of the successes of the Allies in the first few days of the Arras Offensive, and the seizing of Vimy Ridge by the Canadians, which was conversely as big a blow to the German morale as it was a lift to the Allies, Ludendorff despaired to Hindenburg. I had looked forward to the expected offensive with confidence, and am now deeply depressed. Is this to be the result of all our care and trouble during the past half year? Had our principles of defensive tactics proved false? And if so, what is to be done? As would prove to be the common trend between Ludendorff and Hindenburg's partnership, Ludendorff would endure pangs of depression and doubt as to the possibility of success before Hindenburg would steady him and the war could properly and effectively resume. In this case, Hindenburg's contribution enabled Ludendorff to regain his composure and resume an effective German defence, and the German line began to restabilise as a result. John Lee explains the next course of the Iraq campaign. Quote, it was not long before the Germans had it confirmed to them that the British offensives were just the opening shot in a much larger plan. 
On the 16th of April, a massive French attack developed against the German positions on the Chemin des Dames overlooking the Aisne Valley. The sheer violence of the assault led to some progress in terms of ground covered and prisoners taken, but the carefully prepared defences of some fine commanders and troops of the Crown Prince's armies were not greatly shaken in any fundamental way. Two days later, the offensive spread into Champagne, and in some hard fighting around the Moron-Vier Heights, where the counter-attack divisions of the Germans were committed too soon and were roughly handled. The French again made some progress. But as the battle took the normal route of the Western Front and slowed down into a series of desperate and costly attacks and counter-attacks, it became clear that the high hopes of the French commander for a decisive breakthrough were doomed. End quote. The Nivelle Offensive, named after the new French commander-in-chief Robert Nivelle, who had promised so much, was forced to bow to intense pressure within his own command circle, as French units after mid-May refused to attack the German lines anymore. He resigned shortly after, to be replaced by the hero of Verdun, Marshal Philippe Bataan. Though his name would later be dragged through the mud because of close association with Vichy France in the early 1940s, Pétain in the 1910s was seen as the only Frenchman capable of taking France's armed forces out of the rut they were apparently stuck in and pointing them in the proper strategic direction, while also sufficiently boosting their morale and easing their various disputes. The French troops had demonstrated that they could only be pushed so far though, and that they felt the losses in manpower far more personally than the faceless high command, who seemed content to throw men at the problem when better tactics and a sounder strategy would suffice. It had really been a close call, as John Lee explains. Quote, the French soldiery reacted bitterly to the disappointment and began to refuse orders given to them. These acts of collective disobedience spread until the French army was paralysed by mutiny. It was to the great good fortune of the Western Allies, and perhaps owes something to the good work of their intelligence organisations, that the Germans never really understood the seriousness of the situation. It is certainly true that the ability of the British to keep up the pressure in the Arras sector helped to distract the Germans from the potential prize facing them in the crippling of the French army's offensive capability, however temporary a phenomenon that may have been. End quote. 1917 really was the year of the revolt, whether that manifested itself in casual disobedience, as seen here, or in the toppling of a 200-year-old regime, as seen in Russia. All in all, the Arras offensive was something of a stalemate, since although moderate gains were made in the various Allied offensives in their initial stages, these soon ground to an effective halt for the usual reasons. What was abundantly clear, and what is often forgotten about 1917 though, is just how stretched the Germans were in the war. The simple fact was that Germany in 1917 was a nation stretched to breaking point. Its population were tired of war and frustrated with the Kaiser. Its supplies were blocked by the British blockade. Its enemies were numerous by the beginning of the war, but its potential enemies across the Atlantic were even more worrying. The various fronts were stretching German forces too thinly. There hadn't been a single German planned offensive in the West in over a year, save for small-scale counter-attacks. And there was the real feeling among those less positive in the German high command that Ludendorff and Hindenburg, good as they were, could only serve to plug the gaps left by the irreplaceable losses suffered by years of torrential warfare and attrition. The Ara offensive had cost the Allies over 150,000 killed or wounded, while the German figures are estimated to be at least the same as that number. And yet the plans for a renewed offensive in Flanders remained in place, as if the previous casualties had never happened, as if the awful conditions didn't matter, as if, whatever the losses... Allied High Command would carry on regardless. Once new positions from the Arras Offensive had been reinforced, the British and French set about planning a new form of attack against the German positions in Belgium. Tunnelling deep into the ground and then towards the underbelly of the German lines was a strategy developed by the slowly growing Royal Engineers, who would continue to prove their indispensability to the British cause, and would often be seen piloting tanks and leading the destruction of minefields. Haig, now under even more pressure to oversee a breakthrough, approved of the new strategy, and 21 gigantic tunnels were dug and packed with explosive charges to await the horrible moment when they would eventually be blown. The results of months of planning were 21 shafts filled with 447 tonnes of ammonal explosives, which was a British mix of aluminium powder and ammonium nitrate, though the planning goes deeper than just mines, if you can forgive the deliberate pun. 
The Battle of Messina was marked on the calendar and into the brainstem of the British High Command as an offensive which had to make an impact. And because of its necessity and the lessons learned by 1916, British planners applied new tactics such as better artillery ranging, more effective tank support and a completely revamped battalion structure, which would thereafter consist of riflemen, Lewis gunmen, grenaders and rifle grenaders. However, it is doubtful that anything made more of a psychological or practical impact on the Germans than the mines themselves, as Martin Marx Evans in his book Battles of World War I describes the moment, early on June 7, 1917, where the mines were detonated and the prequel to the Passchendaele Offensive officially began. Quote, At 10 past 3 in the morning on the 7th of June, the charges were blown. The ground heaved as 19 huge mines went up, two failed. 30 miles to the southeast in Lille, the German garrison, thinking it had been attacked, went to its stations. In England, the shock was felt as an earthquake. Taken together, these mines constituted the largest ever explosion, excepting nuclear devices, that has ever been contrived. End quote. It was the impact that the explosion, which seems too small word to describe this, had on the German soldiers themselves that deserves special mention. Martin Marx Evans recounts, quote, the Germans in the front lines were entirely broken. It is estimated that some 10,000 of them died instantly or were buried alive in those first few seconds. The survivors were so dazed that they surrendered by the score, too numerous for men to be spared to escort them back to captivity, so the New Zealanders cut off their trouser buttons and send them back with both hands, kept busy preserving their modesty. End quote. The rest of the battle moved like clockwork as if one was watching the film on how an ideal British venture in the First World War was meant to go. But of course, Messina's Ridge was just a means to an end, and although it was captured by a quarter past three on the day the offensive started, satisfying months of Allied planning, the next phase of the offensive was still to come, and this leg would be a lot harder. Almost as soon as somebody decided Passchendaele would be a good idea, it started to rain. That's the impression I got from the sources I have. Soldier A and Soldier B tried to achieve Objective X, but the rain held them back. Commander Y needed supplies from Route C, but the road was submerged. You get the idea. The whole thing reads like a very wet hell. Just imagine how annoyed you are when you have to go to work, slash college, slash school, and you get soaked from the rain. Then imagine that feeling of constant wetness for five months solid. Except you're not going to work, slash college, slash school. You're going to sit in a trench, which is full of water anyway while people in another trench, 50 feet in front of you, are trying to kill you. That's why we can all be thankful World War I was not part of our collective experience. But anyone who has ever been uncomfortably wet for an extended period of time will at least be able to empathise with the plight of the soldiers here in some way, because the rain does not stop from mid-June until November, when everything freezes and it's too cold for rain anyway. Sometimes the conditions themselves sound far more hellish than the actual enemy you have to face. The British public, informed of the victory at the Battle of Messina's and eager for some good news, were encouraged, as were the Allied command, who planned not only for further diversionary attacks further down the French-held lines in places like Verdun, but also to the east by the new Russian government in the ill-fated Kerensky Offensive at the beginning of July 1917. It seemed that the British, in preparing for the Passchendaele Offensive, had already forgotten the lessons learned at Messina's namely the element of surprise, which was thrown away as soon as Messina's was taken anyway, since what would the British and Empire troops need a ridge overlooking everything for, if not for a more ambitious offensive? But the continued build-up of men and materials in front of the German eyes hardly helped the situation, as Martin Marx Evans explains. Quote, For six weeks after the triumph of Messina's, in beautiful summer weather, men and material were massed for the onslaught. Overlying the area, and observing from their lookouts along Passchendaele Ridge, the Germans saw it coming. End quote. While the British prepared for the new breakthrough, the Germans continued their quest to make everything more difficult for them, launching sorties, small-scale bombardments, which were often answered, raiding parties, which had to be countered, and upping their sniping. It was meant to reinforce the idea that war was a never-ending process of attack, defend, counter-attack, and exploit. But what it really did was prevent any real sense of quiet from existing between the two sides. They were not the same enemies as they had been in 1914 or 15. They would not be playing football this Christmas because all they wanted was to go home. And to go home, 
They knew they had to kill their enemy. As we'll soon see though, that didn't mean they had to like it. Almost like a switch had been pulled, as soon as the offensive began at the end of July, so did the rain. Causing it unseasonal, or unexpected, or never before seen in this region, was little consolation for the men on the ground, since the offensive carried on regardless, and the men just had to grin and bear it. To begin with, Haig had committed a blunder by appointing his less capable friend, Lieutenant General Sir Hubert Goh, to lead the British effort, instead of the proven Sir Herbert Plumer, who had led the successful Messina's offensive the month before. Again, a mind map would come in handy here. So picture the Passchendaele offensive as a straight line with a salient or bulge protruding towards the Germans in the centre of it. This bulge was called the Yeep salient, and had been reinforced by the previous Battle of Messina's, which now housed the major punching force of the British and Empire Army that was expected to carry the day under the command of Go, while Plumer in the south of Go was to support him. The French 1st Army with 6 divisions, compared to Go's 18 and Plumer's 12, were to lend support to Go's right. It's not really that important to know everyone's name and what they had for breakfast, but it does clear up some confusion if you know where each army is and why. So to summarise, the French 6th Army was at the top of the line, Go's 5th Army was in the centre, and Plumer's 2nd Army was in the south. Now let's begin. The most success was actually achieved by the French on the first day aided by the British 14 Corps, not Corps, as I've been incorrectly pronouncing, so apologies for that. But by the end of the first day, the objectives established by Go had been largely achieved, but not so much in the centre where it mattered most. Additionally, the rain, combined with bombardment after bombardment, meant that the ground could no longer be traversed by tanks, which removed a major element of Go's plan. The next week, it rained even heavier than before, and the ground turned to soup before the soldiers' eyes. This meant that elevated positions became more important, because everything not on the hill was almost completely impassable, and this helps to explain why so many assaults on seemingly unimportant hills were carried out over the next few months. Evans summarises the first few weeks of the campaign. Quote, The first week of August was marked by continued unseasonal rainfall. By the middle of the month, the Yeep salient was to be subjected to more than 90 millimetres of rainfall filling the trenches and turning the earth into a gluttonous soup. The Germans counterattacked repeatedly, at times gaining little ground, only to be driven back once more, and at other times failing as the combination of accurate artillery and machine gun fire cut them down. The advance, however, had ceased. The first phases of the Third Battle of Ypres had cost the British and Empire troops 31,850 killed and wounded. End quote. The next phase of the offensive, on the 16th to 18th of August, saw the town of Langmark as the objective, but holding this brought on new counterattacks from the Germans. The offensive bled into the next few days, until Haig finally decided on the 25th of August that Go wasn't capable of getting the job done, and reappointed Plumer instead. For Plumer, the task was to ensure that the southern offensives properly coincided with the northern ones a task made harder due to the higher concentration of German divisions down south and in the centre as opposed to the north. So Haig was pressured to ask for a renewed Verdun offensive to soak up some German attention far down south, which would hopefully pull some German divisions away from the problem areas. As if a switch had been turned off then, there was almost no rainfall whatsoever once Plumer took command. But still, Haig was warned by Pétain of the French deficiencies due to the previous mutinies. Yet, despite the French problems, they did attack at the end of August against Verdun, and unlike at Flanders, there would be no strong German counter-offensive to take back the Verdun losses, because Germany was by now stretched to breaking point up and down the line. Let's take a break from Passchendaele now to the preceding diplomacy of 1917, in particular America's participation in this diplomacy, which is often forgotten. America, under President Woodrow Wilson, was a beacon of hope for an organised and fair peace, one which German Chancellor Bethmann Hallwig clung to until it became clear such a plan was unfeasible. These plans were unfeasible because Wilson's request for a conference regarding a universal and equal peace were rejected out of hand by the Allied governments, who protested privately at the American President's interference and ignorance as to the danger Germany posed them, while publicly exercising caution in light of the suggestion's popularity within the liberal segments of their own populations. The negotiations continued nonetheless into early 1917, 
on January 22nd, Wilson opened the U.S. Senate with a speech in which he called for a peace without victory, whereby every state could choose their own forms of government and their security would be guaranteed by a newfound respect for peace. Germany's claim that it could not deal through American President Woodrow Wilson to get a European peace was greeted with hostility by France and Britain, who claimed that the German Chancellor Bethmann Hollweg was merely stalling for time, which he was, the results of a conflicted and muddled German high command manifesting itself on the world stage, but the Allied governments had little intention to settle the war from anything but an advantageous position, so their heavy criticism of the inevitable German response belays their own inability to properly answer Wilson's plea. It is an often forgotten part of World War I history that America was so heavily involved in the diplomacy geared toward peace at this juncture. But Bethman Hallwig was depressed that he had been unable to secure an American-sponsored peace deal, and began to place his faith instead in a military victory for the first time since early 1914. As Robert Asprey, in his book The German High Command at War, Hindenburg, Ludendorff and the First World War, explains, Quote, the negative and exceedingly bellicose reply of the Allied powers brought the submarine issue to full heat, and Bethman Hallwig to the crossroads of indecision. He believed that the peace offensive had failed, along with his hopes for a revolution in Russia. He doubted President Wilson's good graces so far as Germany was concerned. This was partly the work of Ludendorff and the admirals, who kept insisting that America hated Germany and would come into the war anyway, a stance that grimly resembled pre-war arguments for a preventative war and one that, in the present case, was totally contrary to facts. Bethman Hallwig succumbed further to the numbers game of his opponents, who claimed that 400,000 tons of Allied shipping were sunk in November, 416,000 in December, and with an even higher prediction yet for January. What would unrestricted submarine warfare produce? End quote. In actual fact, 400,000 tons was a complete fabrication. Allied losses had never crossed the 200-ton mark, save for February 1917 when they rose to 259. The point was, pursuing such a policy would undoubtedly bring great advantages to Germany's war effort, regardless of the overblown statistics, but these advantages would surely be offset by the American entry into the war on the Allied side. The duo's arguments to counter this, that the U-boats would sink any American troops bound for the continent, were completely bogus and the exaggerated numerical strength of the German submarine fleet, which was less than 20, not 120, as Bethman Hallwig had been informed, was juxtaposed with the touted weakness of the American fleet, who, as Ludendorff claimed, did not even possess a merchant fleet of its own, and was in fact relying on British merchant fleets, which Germany was already sinking anyway. The whole thing was a shambles of lies and cover-ups, designed to lessen the feared psychological impact of a country with the limitless resources of America joining the war against them. It'd be like another Russia, Bethman Hollig had earlier protested to the duo, except this Russia is across an ocean we are not equipped to control. But in fact, America was stronger than Russia, industrially at least, and the bogus assertion on the part of the duo that America was itching for war was yet another lie. America had the smallest army of any world power in 1917. It was not psychologically or logistically prepared for war. Unlike the future scenario of World War II, Americans were not readily supplying war materials to the Allies in great numbers. They were selling war materials and providing loans in an even-handed way, but no plans had been drawn up for a joint Anglo-French-American military or naval strategy once they entered the war, which the Allies were eager to see Wilson join, but which Wilson had spent the previous six months trying to diplomatically end. But let's get back to Passchendaele. When Plumer's force attacked on the 20th of September with more realistic short-term objectives and less rain, his British and Empire forces blew past the German defences. The better weather made British artillery manoeuvres easier, and British logistics improved as the weather improved, enabling... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now to bring their superiority and heavy and medium guns to bear on the depleted Germans, who held onto their positions by the skin of their teeth. This battle of Menin Road Ridge was the third attack within the Third Battle of Ypres, or Passchendaele Offensive, and achieved a measured form of success and the implementation of the leapfrog tactic, whereby troops would move up an attack and then stop and wait for reinforcements, then those reinforcements would become the new attacking line, and the original attacking force would form the tactical reserve, and so on until major gains were made. All of this was only made possible by the British artillery, which was only available due to a break in the weather. The good luck continued for the British with the renewed attack on the 26th of September, named the Battle of Polygon Wood, the success of which enabled the British and Empire troops to look ahead to the upcoming Battle of Brudseend, which granted the greatest success of all to the British and Empire troops within the Passchendaele campaign. Unfortunately for Plumer though, the success of the British on the 4th of October was dimmed by the return of the rain over the next few days which seriously hampered the ability of the British and Empire troops to bring up the artillery which had been so essential to their previous success, and enabled the Germans to fire back from further positions that were both elevated from the worst effects of the rain and sheltered from the previous British artillery fire. Still the attacks continued, with the hope that the Germans could be worn down and the strategically important ground around Passchendaele be taken. Attempts on the First Battle of Passchendaele on the 12th of October achieved nothing but the distinction of containing the blackest day in New Zealand's history, where 855 men from the small country perished needlessly in a single day. Haig ordered on the 13th that no further offences should be made until the weather cleared up and the guns could be brought to bear, and thus a lull in the fighting was briefly experienced, as the French attacked further down the line against the Germans in the Battle of La Malmaison, throwing back the German defenders and capturing the strategically vital Chemende Dam Ridge, and taking over 11,000 German prisoners. The next most infamous phase of the Passchendaele campaign began on the 26th of October, as the rain continued to pour down, and as the Canadian Corps were transferred from further up the line to take the Passchendaele town and its surrounding lands in a renewed offensive. Until the 10th of November, the Canadian and British troops were pounded mercilessly, as they made limited gains against the relentless rain, mud and shell fire of the enemy coming from Passchendaele. Passchendaele itself was captured on the morning of the 6th, while further actions secured the higher ground above the previously scenic village by the 10th, when the battle was officially declared over, and the Passchendaele Offensive, or Third Battle of Ypres itself, was declared over altogether on the 15th of November. It had been a miserable five-month offensive for both sides, but Haig could claim at least a measure of victory, even if it was an overwhelmingly pyrrhic one, as Evans notes. Quote, the whole episode had been condemned as futile by some, with more justification, continuing the assault after the undeniable successes of late September and early October being singled out as the error. It appears that, rightly or wrongly, Haig was genuinely convinced that the Germans were on the point of breaking by the end of September. It is also the case that the Germans themselves viewed these losses as a calamity. What cannot be disputed is the courage and endurance of those who fought in the Third Battle of Ypres, nor the role of the artillery in deciding the outcome. End quote. Important events have been developing while men ground each other down in Passchendaele, so let's look at what we missed from February to November 1917 now. 
Behind the apparently confident face of the German High Command, sometimes just referred to as the duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, there was massive internal division. The problem was the characters of Ludendorff and Hindenburg themselves, who viewed any challenge to their monopoly on power as inconceivable. The duo were no longer satisfied with mere military power and felt compelled to control Germany domestically and politically too, with dire consequences for their country on the world stage. The Kaiser, Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg, and Foreign Minister Zimmermann were the competition, though all acted through a lens of bettering Germany while simultaneously isolating her abroad and ruining her at home. This situation is covered well by Robert Asprey, in which he writes, quote, The duo proposed to control the labour force by an auxiliary labour law that would make every German subject from 16 to 50 eligible for involuntary wartime service. In short, forced labour. There are thousands of childless soldiers' wives who are only a burden on the finances of the state, Hindenburg wrote to the Chancellor. In addition, there are thousands of women and girls at large who are doing nothing or who are engaged in quite useless callings. The principle that he who does not work shall not eat is truer than ever in our present situation, even as applied to women. Students of chemistry and technical colleges will be employed in factories. The whole German nation must live only in the service to the fatherland. End quote. A period of optimism emerged when, on February 1st, 1917, Germany resumed its unrestricted submarine warfare campaign. Now all neutrals supplying trade of any kind to Britain or France would be sunk in the water. This included America. The fact that this included America was, in the eyes of the duo, no big deal. What was a big deal, though, was the fact that for months previously, Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg had attempted to negotiate an armistice with America as the arbitrator of the terms, and Woodrow Wilson, the American president, seemed eager to help end the war, as we saw earlier, but the whole process continued to grind on slowly. For Bethmann Hallweg, though, peace was still desirable, if difficult to attain, as Asprey explains. Quote, While Hindenburg and Ludendorff dreamed of mobilising an empire to fight total war, Bethmann Hallweg was still looking for a negotiated peace as the only way out of Germany's predicament. His proposal in September 1916 that the American president, Woodrow Wilson, negotiate a peace aroused instant hostility in conservative German circles. End quote. America's potential impact on the war changed depending on who in Germany you asked. I don't care two hoots about America. Ludendorff claimed to his other half Hindenburg in the weeks leading up to February 1st, 1917. Just as Bethmann Hallweg initially seemed to be in favour of applying his pressure to the Kaiser to convince him of a negotiated peace, Hallweg himself became convinced of the infallibility of the next course of action in German high command. Unrestricted submarine warfare, Hallweg hoped, would starve Britain into submission, prevent any American soldiers from landing on the continent, and end the blockade of Germany that was killing her domestically. It was not unreasonable to think, from the German point of view, that unrestricted submarine warfare would have an even greater impact than the restricted submarine warfare had had so far. However, just as the unrestricted submarine warfare program had done in 1915, it was expected that those neutrals on Germany's borders would be up in arms. Indeed, during these months before unrestricted submarine warfare was declared, the duo were far more concerned with these neutrals than the danger America posed, as John Lee explains. Quote, the prospect of European neutral countries declaring war on Germany was an immediate problem that had to be taken into account. The Netherlands alone could field 500,000 new troops and would pose the greatest threat possible to the German armies on the Western Front. The borders of both Denmark and the Netherlands would have to be guarded and the troops were not available for that task until after Romania was defeated. End quote. Perhaps because so many other options had been exhausted on land, the idea of unrestricted submarine warfare began to gain an almost mythical status, convincing Bethmann Hallweg that it was the only means left, in the words of Ludendorff, to secure a victorious end of the war within a reasonable time. But there was still the issue of Romania and her continuing of the war. Despite losing her capital Bucharest to the Central Powers in early December 1916, Romania would remain a thorn in the side of German plans until her capitulation in late 1917, and the Romanian presence added to the additional problems posed by the Salonican Front on the borders of Greece, which further required Austro-German attention as the Balkans was wearing Bulgaria out. 
While Romania was on the ropes, the Allied pressuring and outright threatening of Greece to join the war on the Allied side forced the pro-German Greek king Constantine I out of the country into neutral Switzerland. His son Alexander took the throne, but immediately became a de facto prisoner in his own kingdom, as republican liberal elements of the Greek population, under the banner of Prime Minister Venizelos, seized power and immediately declared for the Allies. The date was July 23, 1917, and all the Balkan states were now at war in one way or another. Romania could be defeated far faster if she could be kept isolated from Russian aid. But Russian aid was a far-reaching resource in World War I. Few were even aware of the Russian contingent that fought on the Western Front against the Germans alongside their Franco-British allies. Yet some 120,000 men took part in these manoeuvres on the Western Front. Russia was also fighting Turkey in the Caucasus. It was guiding itself against German actions in the Baltic. Soldiers were moved into Romania to support the Entente ally. And of course, Russians fought on the Eastern Front itself. One can only imagine the impact the Russian withdrawal from the war would have, considering all the pies they had fingers in. The reality was, though, Russia was veering towards a collapse that seemed not just hopeful in Germany, but likely to its allies, as Rex Wade, in his book The Russian Revolution 1917, explains. Quote, The Russian Revolution suddenly broke out in February 1917. It was not unexpected. Russians had long discussed revolution, and by late 1916, a sense existed across the entire political and social spectrum that some kind of upheaval could happen at any time. The crisis in Russia was obvious even abroad. In December 1916, and more markedly in January 1917, there were signs that something important and significant was going on in Russia that required exploration, and the rapidly growing rumours of coming political changes caused for more accurate knowledge and further interpretation. Thus wrote Nicholas Butler of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the United States on his decision to send the Norwegian Christian Lang on a fact-finding mission to Russia in early 1917. Most today have the image of Lenin seizing power so etched in their minds that they are not even aware of the First Revolution, which took place in March 1917 in Russia in which the Tsar abdicated and a provisional government was set in place. From the beginning it was a shaky setup, not helped by that provisional government's decision to continue with the unpopular war. The new Prime Minister of this provisional government, Alexander Kerensky, was under the impression that previous attempts at military success by Russia had failed because her armies were being led to ruin by the Commander-in-Chief, Tsar Nicholas II, who had no military experience to speak of. Give the Russian soldier a good leader, Kerensky believed, and the central powers would be pushed back to where they came from. It was something of an optimistic military view, but Russia had proven before that she was capable of not just beating the Austro-German alliance, but severely threatening their strategic plans in offensives in mid-1916, which, if you'll remember from the last episode, prevented Germany from launching an effective counter-attack on the Somme. The problem was that the new dynamic adopted by the provisional government under Kerensky was trying to please all by allowing Soviets or workers' councils to share power with them by effectively gaining the allegiance of the peasants and the lower and working classes. Once Kerensky attempted to continue the war with his ill-fated offensive, beginning on July 1st, 1917, support for the new regime evaporated and the Soviet councils began to campaign not just for an end to the war but for greater political control for all. That was Kerensky's mistake, that he felt the terms of the Entente prevented him from ending the war against Germany. In this vein of thought, Kerensky appears an honourable man, but in my view, he should have seen which way the wind was blowing in Russia, and negotiated an armistice with Germany out of necessity. All over Russia, the war had lost its sparkle, and mutinies were breaking out across the armies and navies, as more and more men were thrown away for no gain. Even with the new government, the average soldier on the ground saw little actual change in their own situation. Food rations were meagre or non-existent for many weeks on end. War supplies, such as ammunition or weaponry, were still ferociously hard to come by. And many were still equipped in the same kit from 1914, were subject to the same mass infantry wave tactics of 1914, and were expected to believe in the war in the same way as they had in 1914. It is hardly surprising that the words of Vladimir Lenin, once thought a dangerous revolutionary by practically all but the most Marxist of Russian citizens, began to make sense and gain adherence. 
He was smuggled through Germany on a sealed train, just in case he tried to stop off in Germany on the way and ferment revolution against the Kaiser, freight as he was by the duo, they tried to push him east as far as possible, and he arrived in April 1917, with the result that the Bolsheviks began to steadily gain influence in Russia, helped along by food shortages and a disaster of the Kerensky offensive, and just general war weariness. The October Revolution overthrew Kerensky's provisional government on November 7th, and the country immediately began to slip into civil war, with the Whites, or anti-Marxist Republican or Monarchist forces, facing the Reds, or pro-Marxist forces. The Whites enjoyed international support from Britain, Italy, America and France, who did not want to see such a revolutionary government take hold. The diplomacy here is fascinating, and the interference of Russian affairs in the name of democracy from the period 1918 to 1921 by the Western powers is a reminder of the fear in which they viewed a spreading of these Leninist ideals in their own states. The fact that those involved were able to spare troops at all to send across the world while the fronts were under constant strain demonstrates this view, but it is an often forgotten episode of history yet one which formed a wider part of a grand battle for influence between the Western powers and Japan, as Leo Bacino explains in his book, Reconstructing Russia, U.S. Foreign Policy in Revolutionary Russia, 1917-1922, from the American perspective. Quote, American statesmen were deeply concerned that the Russian Empire would be divided into German and Japanese influences. The collapse of the provisional government in Russia by the end of 1917 intensified this rivalry among the remaining powers by transforming the Russian Empire itself into an arena in this global struggle between rival imperial systems. During the extraordinary years 1918-1919, when a political vacuum existed in the empire, Germany, Japan, Britain and France all pursued policies in Russia that were aimed at establishing spheres of influence in one form or another. End quote. The Russo-German peace treaty negotiations actually spill over into mid-1918, so we'll cover them in more detail next time. For now though, just imagine Russia as effectively out of the war by late 1917, though the Allies were not as concerned as they should have been for the collapse of the Eastern Front, because the campaigning had finally paid off. America, on April 6th, 1917, had finally declared war on the Central Powers. It was not a course Wilson had originally planned on taking but at every turn it seemed Germany had done little to discourage America's entry into the war against them. As Robert Asprey explains, quote, The American president did not stand alone in his reluctance to ask for a declaration of war. A powerful pacifist and isolationist bloc existed in the Senate, indeed in the nation. Had Germany properly exploited this target with a persuasive propaganda campaign, the American government might have remained hobbled to the nation's traditional belief in isolationism. Germany did no such thing. Her brutal behaviour in Belgium and France in 1914 had occasioned the first large swing of American public opinion against her. Then, 1915, the sinking of the Lusitania, the execution of Belgian nurse Edith Cavell, the introduction of poison gas, the naval and air attacks on British and French cities. Subsequent ship sinkings brought additional converts. German attempts to sabotage ships in American harbours added to the sentiment, as did the very successful anti-German propaganda effort that England carried out in America. End quote. The declaration of unrestricted submarine warfare had caused America to break off diplomatic relations with Germany, but war was not immediately declared, as the Allies hoped in mid-February, though the duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff believed it was only a matter of time before another Lusitania occurred and Wilson could stand the Warhawks in America no longer. However, what tipped Wilson over the edge was not a byproduct of the unrestricted submarine warfare campaign, it was instead a deliberate, stupid and completely ignorant act by Germany's Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmermann, and his construction and delivery of a document which is now infamous, the Zimmermann Telegram. The Telegram gave America the impetus for war that she not necessarily wanted, but which was vitally important for the sake of justification, both to her own public and the nations of the world. Asprey explains the situation. Quote, the message was sent in code via the Washington Embassy, but British intelligence, which had long since cracked the German code, picked it up. Once Wilson broke off relations with Germany, Zimmermann telegraphed his ambassador to make the offer to the Mexican president. British intelligence sat on its interception until it could be released without compromising the source. The American public read Zimmermann's words on the first day of March. They created an enormous sensation 
It was as if the nation had survived the earthquake of unrestricted submarine warfare, only to fall victim to a post-earthquake that sent remaining neutral sentiment out the shattered windows. End quote. The terms of the telegraph were to offer an alliance to Mexico with the additional idea that Japan would declare war on America because of the Japanese desire to expand in the Pacific. To lure Mexico into a German alliance, Zimmerman offered Mexico its former territories lost to America in the Mexican-American War. See episode 11 for that, wink. Such grand promises merely displayed German ignorance in full view because there was no conceivable way that Mexico was capable of either containing the American force or thereafter administering the American southern states, which had long since forgotten their formerly Mexican roots. German submarines continued to sink American ships, however, as if the whole telegram scandal mattered little to the German high command either way. Thus, America's Senate voted to declare war on a Germany which was living in a different world to that of American statesmen. The Jew were correct in one of their estimations, however, because although merchant ships were being armed from mid-April onwards, bear in mind these were the merchant ships America was not supposed to possess, according to the intelligence of the duo, America herself was not ready yet to engage in the kind of war Britain, France and Italy needed her men for. It would take many months before American men could be seen in real effective force on the Western Front. But by that time, Germany's duo hoped, the Franco-British alliance could be squashed by the freed-up German divisions from the newly peaceful Eastern Front. As Romania caved in its isolation to the Austro-German, Ottoman, Bulgarian forces surrounding it, as Russia collapsed inwards to greet the new phase of its history in relative peace, and as Italian forces were heavily defeated in the Battle of Caporetto in the October-November offensive near the end of 1917's campaigning year, the possibility for Central Powers' victory became less a dream for Germany's enigmatic duo and more and more a reality. Once again, the duo looked to the Western Front to be the decisive theatre of World War I, as all sides had done since the war began. This time, however, Germany was to be nowhere on the defensive, and all along the line, the German soldier was expected to carry the fight to the enemy, in the last desperate gamble for continental supremacy, and the final German offensive of World War I. 1917 was the year Germany learned a lot of lessons. Britain and France had proven that the German defence could be broken with new offensive strategies, and thus carried the majority of the year with offensives that gained initial ground, but became bogged down due to the usual constraints of renewed German defence and the unusual constraints of ridiculous weather. But Germany was not on the defensive everywhere. Her eastern front had first stabilised and then enjoyed rapid success against the crumbling Russian forces, which were set to hammer out the final peace details in early 1918. The Balkans had shifted as Romania bowed out and Greece entered into the quagmire the results of which saw more pressure placed on Austria with the renewed Greco-British offensives in late 1917. Austria was having an easier time of it thanks to the Italian collapse at Caporetto in late 1917 though, which was so catastrophic, Franco-British troops had to be moved in to bulk up the Italian defence. Italy was saved by a change in command, and a pacification of the soldiers' demands which, as seen in France, should have been acquiesced to in the first place. Britain continued to attack Turkey's Middle Eastern holdings, capturing much of Syria and Jerusalem itself in late 1917, which was something of a consolation prize to the now concerned Allied High Command. America remained the light at the end of the tunnel for the Allies, but 1918 would not be the year that America saved the Allies, as we'll see in the next episode. It will be a year much like 1914, where the Franco-British alliance halts the German offensive, in yet another battle, on yet another field, for yet another year. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed When Diplomacy Fails' look at 1917, and that you'll join me the next time for our final, I can't believe I'm saying this, final episode on World War One when we look at 1918 and its implications on the world. Expect that to maybe be longer than the others, just a hint. Before we go, though, at the beginning of the episode, I said I was going to explain myself i.e. explain why this is my first episode in almost a month. Well, if you've been a regular on the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page, which, by the way, has felt more like my apology network than When Diplomacy Fails official page over the past month, then you'll have seen my explanation. Somehow, I managed to break my laptop screen. It fell off my knee, and I just couldn't catch it in time. 
Once I got it back repaired two weeks later, I went into overdrive mode as I tried to get done all the college assignments that had built up since I couldn't do anything in the previous fortnight. That was not a fun time to be my friend, but I eventually got everything done and could breathe a huge sigh of relief as I saw my stress levels finally go down. Then I had to accept that I'd left you guys in the dark for the past month as to what comes after 1916, so I really felt I had to get the special work done as fast as possible. If you remember in my last episode, when I said it was never meant to spread over two months like it has, I was talking in mid-February at the time, so obviously it's been pretty frustrating, knowing how long I've had to stretch out this special for. But hey, I figure no harm has really been done, and hopefully the podcasting rust I've encountered is not so obvious here. So that's my excuse. Bad luck and too much college work. The next goal is to get the next episode out to you pretty soon. And we then enter into a brand new chapter of When Diplomacy Fails, the 20s. Expect a state of the podcast address to be released just before we sink our teeth into the next episode. It's an exciting time to be a listener of When Diplomacy Fails, and I assure you, I have big plans for When Diplomacy Fails' future. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. But before we go, one last thing. If you were not scared off by my rendition of Old Lang Syne at the start of the episode, remember, it was like, because we're here, because we're here, etc., then good, and thank you. But I have the original file. That's right, I do. The 1910 file has somehow come into my possession, (coughs) Wikipedia open source files, (coughs) and because of that, I decided to treat you guys to the original rendition of Old Lang Syne. I don't exactly know how you're going to take this, but I do love inserting these random files in there and seeing what you guys make of it. And the response has generally been positive so far, so I'm just going to put this in at the end, and if you don't like it, then okay. But if you do, then great. And I'm sure I'll put in some more in the future. Okay, well at the end of this, the episode's just going to end, so stick around, and thanks very much, guys. Enjoy. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.